my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. Clark.com is our main website, ClarkDeals.com, where you go to save money each and every day. Coming up in just a few moments in today's Clark Rageous Moment, Wells Fargo in the news again, not in a good way. I have a special warning for you if you do business with Wells Fargo. And coming up yet later, so often with issues of identity theft, we don't know what the genesis of it was, what, what data breach, what happened. Well, I have a crazy story to share with you where one of our Team Clark members figured out the source of a data breach in her life and identity theft in her life. I want to talk right now, though, about an industry that I've taken probably six calls about over the last couple of years that is trying to bring about change in the real estate business. It's what's called iBuyers. An iBuyer is an organization that comes to you and says, hey, don't list your home for sale. We'll just buy it from you. And these organizations have big money behind them. OfferPad is one of them. Open Door is another. Knock is a third. But others are trying this as well. Zillow is attempting to be in this business. And in addition, there are traditional real estate agencies entering into alliances with iBuyers. Keller Williams, which is a real estate agency in a number of cities around the country, is going to start offering people deals in 12 cities, according to something I saw in MarketWatch, where if you list a home with them and it doesn't sell it by a certain point, then they will make an offer to you to buy it through their partner, which in their case is OfferPad. And these organizations are very experimental. Their business models keep changing. There are any of a number of business models. And people ask me, is this something you should do or not do when you're trying to sell your home? Well, I sold a rental property recently. And as part of putting it for sale, I talked to various of the iBuyers And to my surprise, I actually listed it with one of these organizations. And, you know, I I talked to different ones, and one of them, um, Open Door, does not sell condos. This was a condo that I was selling. OfferPad made me an offer. Knock offered something completely different. They wanted to attempt to sell the home as kind of like a traditional real estate agency, but if it didn't sell within a period of time, they would then buy it at a pre-agreed to price. And the price that, that we had agreed to was reasonable to me, but the funny thing was, was that when I put the property for sale, it went under contract in 15 hours, so and went at full list price. So I never got into the thing of what it was going to be like to try to have them buy it if it had not sold. And in, in the example 
uh, my offer it was if it didn't sell in 60 days, they would buy it. But the whole process with these iBuyers offers some really interesting wrinkles. So now Knock isn't interested in doing the kind of thing they did for me. Now what they seem to be heavily doing is working with builders trying to sell homes. And they come in as a third party where you don't have to worry about ending up with two home payments as a buyer, that they provide the bridge between your old home selling and the new home you're buying. And you'd have to go look and see how that whole thing works. And all of them base the offers they make to you on the condition that your home currently is in. So if your home needs meaningful repairs or needs redecorating, needs painting, needs new carpet, whatever, before it can go on the market, the landscaping looks abysmal, anything, whatever it is, you're going to pay for that, either directly or indirectly through the transaction, because they're going to account for that in the offer they make to you. The advantage, in my case, was they wanted to re-carpet the unit and repaint it, was because they have so many contractors working for them, their turnaround time was lightning fast and the price was de- really good. And so from when they said what decorating changes they wanted to make to the place till it was on the market was 10 days. It was a very good turnaround cycle, much quicker than I could have done it myself. So this idea of using an iBuyer is absolutely, clearly part of the real estate market with certain limitations. It is something that works very well in a lot of suburban communities in the South and the West, where there are large production builders, homes can be very easily compared one to another. This does not work in older communities, does not work in the Northeast U.S., And the iBuyers tend to concentrate in the great middle of the market. They don't buy expensive homes. They don't buy really inexpensive homes. They're interested in the heart of the market. And so you won't know till you contact one if they're even interested. And in many cases, they may not ever serve your market. Think of older communities in the Northeast U.S. They're never going to serve, period. Not going to happen. But... For so many people across the South and the West, the iBuyers are part of the market that that really starting to matter. In cities like Phoenix and Las Vegas, the market share of these iBuyers is getting closer and closer to 10% of the overall market. Traditional real estate agencies like Keller Williams experimenting with being involved with OfferPad and joint venture you're going to see traditional real estate agencies offer a variety of things outside the box of what they've traditionally offered, where they may, in fact, offer to buy your home just straight out, and then they become the owner of that home and have to market it. Or they may offer a breaker point, probably three months or so, where if your home hasn't sold, they agree to buy it at a predetermined price. So... As to my experience, I only have myself and one property to talk about, 
so I can't make any judgments for you. But I can tell you this, if you are putting your home on the market, you're in a community where the iBuyers are present, you owe it to your wallet to get quotes from all the iBuyers out there in addition to talking with traditional real estate agents. You'll find differences in the offers that could be substantially different from one iBuyer to another when they just say they'll buy your home for a price. And it also gives you market information that's useful to you when a traditional agent says, well, we think you should list your home for blah, blah, blah. You're able to have a sense of what general fair market value should be from the algorithms that the iBuyers use. John joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, John. Hi, Clark. Loved listening to you for so long, and this is the first time I've been on the air. So thanks well, for having me. Well, it's great to have you here, and you have a wonderful problem to have in your life. You live in two homes. Yes, yes. Uh, we have two homes in neighboring states, and I've got two satellite services. I'm trying to cut the cord, so that's my problem right now is uh, how to best do that, but provide my wife has to have live TV. So uh, Easy, so I, easy, easy. You're not going to believe how easy it is. Okay. So dump the satellites. Mm-hmm. So the two satellite bills, I guess, are between two and 300 a month combined? Correct. All right. So if you dump them and you go to one of the big streaming services, the one that is taking the most market share in the country is YouTube TV. You'll pay 50 a month, and it's portable. It goes where you are. Well, the problem is we're not always in the same residence together. She's the only one that needs a live TV, but she goes back and forth between our homes, and they only allow you to change your home zip code so many times a year. In fact, the one I'm, I currently cut the cord in one home and the live service I have there allows you four changes a year. So I'm trying to think about how to handle that. So you could do the lowest cost option with Sling, which is 25 a month. If the lowest cost option has the channels that are most important to her. Well, they didn't. Sling doesn't. Um, That's why I ended up with one of the other ones. Who are you using? Uh, I'm currently using Hulu Live at the one residence. And I still have the satellite at the other one. I haven't haven't gone all the way. I just did that last month at the one residence. So the Hulu Live is $49.95 a month. Is that what I remember? Yeah, it's forty four ninety five, I think. Right. But I'm I'm not happy with the fact I can't fast forward through commercials, so I got to go the. I think I'm going to up it to the forty nine to get that that feature. Okay, so we got fifty a month for that, and she goes how many times back and forth does she go a year? She's probably every other month. So she changes residences like six or so times a year yeah all right i wonder if you did a vpn if you'd avoid the geographic problem you familiar with a vpn a virtual private network yes i haven't thought about how to implement that 
this way, though. Yeah. I wonder if VPN would solve the problem. Because, you know, a lot of people avoid geographic restrictions with video by using a virtual private network. And they're really inexpensive. And PC Magazine did a very thorough guide to VPNs. So that might be the most economical way for her to be able to move back and forth and still get the video content she wants. So that, well, right now, so I've got about three TVs at each home and I'm using, I I won't save money this month because I had to, even though I have smart TVs, I had to buy a, a stick, a streaming stick because the TVs are vintage 2015. Okay. And, and the Hulu app, wouldn't support the live piece. So I ended up buying a, a stick to go in there. Okay. Because the, the easiest way to do what I'm talking about is to use, we're getting really in the weeds here, but to use the phone as the video content source and use a, um, a Chromecast to project the TV, the video to the television. So the phone becomes both the remote and the source of the programming and then project it onto the TV. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that will fly. I got to make it very easy. So um, I would say in your case, you got to pay 100 a month. Yeah, I, I was thinking I might end up with two, two accounts. So you'd still save how much a month if you had to do that? Well, I'd, I'd cut my cut my costs at least in half, especially once I got by buying all the st- all the uh, streaming sticks I need to get. So I could get a payback in a fairly short order. So I I want it to be cheaper. Maybe someone listening will have a better suggestion. But right now, for ease of use, maybe you just have to cry uncle and you have to buy two services, and that way you got one in one city, one in another. Gosh, that seems like a unnecessary expense. Today's Clark Rageous moment is so disappointing. It is an investigation by the New York Times of continuing egregious practices by Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo that can't seem to get out of its own way in its ethics and behavior and terrible, terrible criminal acts that Wells Fargo committed on a massive scale for years. Wells Fargo keeps doing these ads about how they become this new Wells Fargo. Well, the New York Times investigation found that there are brutal practices that Wells Fargo employs where it arbitrarily will decide to close customer accounts just at almost at random, it seems. And when they close your account, it will then generate, because of all the automatic payments that people make and the drafts and all that, when Wells will close an account on very short notice, it triggers massive overdraft fees that then are a huge profit center for Wells Fargo that can cost people many thousands of dollars because Wells Fargo decides to close the account. People have, may not remember they were going to have this draft or that draft or the other one come out of the account, and it generates these huge fees, massive fee income, not at all unusual in examples given in this story of fees for a single closed account of $1,500. 
And then on top of it, Wells Fargo then ruins people's ability to open bank accounts by putting them on an industry bad boy, bad girl list that other banks use when they decide who to do business with. Wells Fargo was defiant in their responses to the New York Times and points out again how Wells Fargo is a tough ship to turn around and you need to be very careful doing business with them because getting their act together where they become customer focused and honest seems to be a long, long road ahead. It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. One of our Team Clark members from our website, Laura, is with me now, and Laura is here because she, like uh, who knows how many of us, is an identity theft victim, and when you have your identity breached, and it can be so many different ways an account gets compromised. Somebody opens an account as if they're you. Um, there are many, many, many layers to identity theft. You don't know where it comes from. But in your case, you do. How are you unique among us that you actually feel like you know where your identity theft problems came from? Well, I uh, went to the Equifax claims site, put in my information, and lo and behold, found out that I was uh, eligible to file a claim. But there are 150 million of us whose information was compromised in the Equifax case. But you have had uh, a series of issues involving identity theft. What kind of things have happened to you since the Equifax data breach? was was made aware a couple of years ago. Uh, since the breach, I had someone open a uh, credit card in my name and nearly run it up to its full capacity. The fraudsters then tried to apply for multiple loans, cell phone service in my name, and, and who knows what else. <laughs> the list goes on. I can't remember everything off the top of my head. So this happened with the Equifax breach became known a couple of years ago. When was it the first time that this person was successful opening a credit card as if they're you? If I remember, it was June or July of 2017. And unfortunately, I wasn't paying attention to my information and didn't find out until November. Uh, I was really lucky that they didn't do more damage than what they were able to get away with. So you then started the whole affidavit thing and you had to let the credit card company know that you weren't having a grand time running up this account. How long did it take after that for them to say, okay, Laura, you're not the person who got this card and we're removing this from your credit? Well, I was really lucky because they uh, unfortunately opened with a credit union. Credit unions are amazing and very responsive. And so... We were able to get things shut down with them immediately, but you know the overall damage control for everything they would try to do took weeks of phone calls. And so you had not had your credit frozen, obviously, at that time. No. <laughs> you get that now, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> Everything's frozen, and, and uh, we're, we're locked down and secure. I've got my Credit Karma account open, so I'm constantly monitoring activity now. And your credit score, is it back okay after this? And it has completely bounced back. Okay. Yes. So did it harm you at any point in the process 
trying to apply for a loan or suddenly being hit with higher auto insurance rates or anything like that? Are there any consequences that you're aware of that happened to you? No, I was really one of the fortunate ones. I was able to get everything you know, fixed and back in order in a pretty short amount of time. Again, I'm one of the lucky ones. They could have done so much more damage between when they got my information and when I found out <laughs> that there was activity on my accounts. So the perpetrator or perpetrators, we're guessing, got the information from the Equifax breach. Equifax says, well, we take responsibility, right? I mean, when I put in my information, Equifax's website did say that I was potentially impacted and the timing is pretty close. Right. So I can't say with 100% certainty, but it, all the pieces kind of come together that way. Right. Well, there's a lot of griping that people who expected to receive compensation from the Equifax breach now are hearing they're going to get basically nothing because there have been so many claimants. But you are applying under a whole different program. Is that right? I think I was using the general claim. I used the link that's available on Clark.com. Um, I had the option between the um, free credit monitoring or the money. Of course, I opted for the money. Um, and they did want me to fill out a very detailed uh, form about the amount of time that I spent trying to become whole again with the activity of, of being a victim of credit fraud. And um, But the maximum you can receive under that is how much? I think it was $120. Okay, so I'm the one who gets to give you bad news. Yeah. It's not good. It's not, <laughs> not good. getting $120. You're not getting $120. Nobody even knows if it's going to be $3 or $5 or $10 or $0.80 cents or whatever because the number of people filing claims like you have done is so large. Yes. So it just shows that Equifax got off light and you're the one who had to do all the work. You're the one who faced the hassle. The good news is that you're sophisticated you advocated for yourself, and it's just like a glancing blow that's long done now. Well, I'm, you know, I'm sorry you're not going to get your 120 bucks, 121.5, whatever it was. <laughs> but the good news is that you did get everything cleaned up. Yes. And it's just one of those hassles of modern life that Equifax was so careless with our information, they were gross, grossly negligent. And we're all left with the consequences of that. And in your case, thank goodness, the consequences were an aggravation and not really serious money coming out of your wallet or harm to you and your reputation. I was very lucky. <laughs> well, good for you. And if you have not frozen your credit yet, what would you say to somebody? Don't be like me. Listen to Clark and freeze your credit now. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you for sharing your story. It's always great to hear somebody who's been through it and came out the other side A-OK. -okay. Jim joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Jim. Hello, Clark. How are you? Great. Thank you, Jim. You're going to uh, go to the Grand Canyon. Yeah, we've decided to take a special vacation. I've uh, been a fan for a long time, by the way, but uh, just wanted to get your advice on how we could nail down a, 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 a convertible car that we would enjoy renting for the two weeks we're going to be gone. The car rental companies generally will not guarantee you that they'll book you in a convertible. 
you probably have experienced that talking to him already, right? Well, actually, I went through a discount big box uh, store that has a travel option on their website, and I ended up reserving. Uh, they put me through to a, a particular rental ca- uh, car that, that the paperwork says it's a convertible uh, Mustang or similar. Okay, so, so what I would do, you book through the Costco travel program? Exactly. All right. So you know which car rental company it is. Yes. And you're renting in Phoenix or Vegas? No, I'm getting it here in Atlanta. We're going to drive. You're going to drive all the way across the country? Right. Wow. Yeah. I want you, to see it. You know, it's, uh, I'm, a, I'm a proud American. I want to see, I want to see the Middle West and South. I want to go. I want to see all that. So we're going to do that. Well, fantastic. Okay. So I want you to call the local office for whatever car rental agency it is Costco Travel booked you with. Okay. And I want you to talk to somebody there and make sure that that when you have a convertible reserve that you don't have to worry about that. Right. Second, make sure that there's no geographical restriction on your rental. Yes, I've already I've already made sure of that in the in the agreement that I have a I have a printout of. Fantastic. So yeah. the only thing you got to worry about is that when you get there that they don't have convertibles available, but because you're driving all the way across the country, if you had to wait another couple hours or something till one's returned, you'll be okay. Right. Yeah, that would not be, that would not, that's not desirable, but that would not be a, a deal killer. But I think calling them, even calling and talking to, to uh, the station manager the day before you're supposed to go and talk to them that you have a convertible um, reserved are they ava- do they look like they're going to be available when you show up the next day yeah would that's be a good important. idea <laughs> okay that's what i'll do is there any way to to find out the the right phone number to call to speak to a customer service kind of person uh, or just take my chances with the uh, with so the, with it depends on the car rental agency if they hide their numbers for a, a, a local office you know i talk about get human but that's not going to get you to a local office. So uh, you may find that if you call the airport itself, the airport authority, uh-huh. they can give you a local number for that car rental agency at uh-huh. their airport. That's an idea. Okay. So have a great trip. I mean, you gonna you gonna hike down the canyon? Well, not gonna do too much hiking. But <laughs> We'll do maybe a little bit, but we're going to drive around. We're going to be in the area for over a week, so we're going to check it, check out the entire area as as best we can. Well, that will be wonderful. I love the canyon. I had always intended to hike down to the river and back. I've never done that. I've gone part way, and that's something that I'd love to do at some point in my life. Nicole is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great. Thank you, Nicole. How can I be of service? Great. Thank you for taking this call. Certainly. I have a question about paying for school. So my daughter is in college. She's entering her second year of school. I was able to save, and I paid for her first year, the balance for the first year of school. Now she's at a point, I thought that she we would have gotten more money for school than we did. And she's out of state, but she's close enough to home where, you know, at this point she could actually commute. So that could make a difference. But 
the cost of the tuition, the balance is basically the same as her going in state. So there's really not much difference. So I was wondering in terms of paying off the remainder cost for the education, what's the best thing to do? I know you shy away from private loans. She's already accepted the subsidized loans. Should we go ahead and accept the unsubsidized as well? So, okay, so there's a distinction I want to make clear. An unsubsidized loan can still be a federal loan. Right. So you want to you want to avoid the private lenders like the plague. So <laughs> first she can take her subsidized money, then her unsubsidized, okay. and then you can borrow under the Parent PLUS loan, which carries a higher rate. Mm-hmm. So tell me, how much is it that she'd have to pay as an out-of-stater? It's about 20000 for the year. That's a lot of money. Yes. So how much so you didn't she didn't borrow money at all the freshman year, is that right? She had um maybe two thousand in the federal loans. So basically no borrowing the freshman year. But if Right. If she, she wasn't offered much of in terms of federal either. So if she had to borrow the next three years, you and her together, you're looking at uh, sixty some odd thousand dollars. Right. I mean, that's a big burden for her to graduate from school with. Right. So, I, I'm a dad, so I got to be careful what I say here. But uh-huh. maybe she does this sophomore year at the out of state school and then considers her junior and senior year in state commuter. Okay. Because, I mean, do you really want her to graduate with 60 some thousand dollars in student loan debt? No, of course not. It seemed like they are so comparable. If she's commuting in-state or out-of-state, the bottom line, the costs are very, very comparable. But not, but not in-state if she was a commuter. Yes. You're telling me in-state tuition as a commuter is the same as out-of-state tuition as a commuter? Yes, if she did not take the housing out-of-state. Oh, no, I got that, but if she went right, in, yeah. if she went in-state and commuted didn't and stayed at home, it would be cheaper, wouldn't it? It is a little cheaper, but it didn't look like there was much difference. All right, this is your assignment as mom. Okay. You got a, you got a whole year to make this happen, is to start really digging in to what might be available in-state for her as a commuter, as much as she may love the school she's going to out of state, uh, graduating with $60,000 in student loan debt from an undergraduate degree, that's a burden. That's a big burden for her to overcome. And I think transferring in-state with lower cost is the answer, but you got to look around and find uh, where it's going to be affordable for her commuter in state and you got a whole year you can figure that out and make that work and getting to the financial aid office and getting to know somebody there at a school near home that's in state you get on that now you get on that this year you're going to likely find options available to lower that cost that you don't want to wait for the last minute to do it's time for Ask Clark. That's where you post a question for me at clark.com slash ask. 
And then producer Joel asks it for you. What you got, Joel? All right, Clark, we got a comment actually from Steven. He says, I love your show. I appreciate the advice you provide. I'm a Costco member, and recently I applied for the City Costco Visa card to move from my no rewards credit card. And I noticed when I received the approval letter with a list of benefits that contained a notice that effective September 22nd, a lot of these additional benefits would be discontinued and no longer available. It does say that coverage still applies for purchases made prior to that date. I thought you would want to know this so you can share it with your radio audience in case you didn't already know. Oh, I've gotten an earful from uh, people about the Costco changes. So Citibank, as many other issuers, but Citibank has been kind of um, taking a machete to their benefits. A lot of credit card companies have been cutting back on the reward cards and the benefits that come with them, which you can expect with the Costco Citibank Visa is you're going to have your cash back, and that's really what the card will do. So 4% cash back on gas, 3% on travel and restaurants, 2% on shopping in Costco and Costco.com, 1% everything else. So all the other really neat things that came with it, I guess pretty much forget about it. All right, Clark. And Earl says, I saw you in a restaurant recently. I was wondering why you wear two watches. And as an aside, my wife and I have been on the debt-free journey for about two years now. Thanks to your advice and some consistent application of our new spending habits, we are totally debt-free. So thank you. Congratulations to you. So the two watches are, because I guess I am obsessive. So I've been wearing Garmin watches forever for tracking fitness. And so I try to average the last three and a half years, I've averaged over 17,000 steps a day. And I have this, uh, this fixation on that. And so it's got all my historical records and all that. So that's why I still have the Garmin. I wear a Samsung smartwatch. I hope at some point Garmin will come out with a good enough smartwatch that I have the smartwatch and the fitness all in one. So that's why it's my Personality defect is why I wear two. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.